and um, Mrs. Beck, Mrs. Smith, are we good with children? So, okay. So, all right. Cool. Mrs. Lopez, Nora's good. So, all right. All right. Well, with that, we're going to continue our study in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, verse 1 through 11. Um, On June 2nd, 1953, Elizabeth II was crowned as the Queen of England. The location of the ceremony was Westminster Abbey. In fact, it was closed for about five months leading up to her coronation because they had to redo Westminster Abbey to be able to... um, They were anticipating about 8,000 people attending, and so they had to redo the whole thing to be able to fit that many people. And of course... Being a, a royal ceremony, it was, of course, a lavish affair. She's dressed in uh, very traditional outfits. Um, Elizabeth arrives on a coach that is gold-plated. It had been used for hundreds of years. Um, this gold-plated coach drawn by, by horses. And she, she comes into the... Um, I'm not going to go into all of the details of the of the entire ceremony. But there are some interesting things about the ceremony because as it draws to a conclusion, as all of the people speak and everything starts to get done, eventually they come to a place where the queen is anointed and blessed and then a crown is placed on her head and at that point she ascends to the throne and sits down and upon taking the throne, all of the people who have position and titles upon taking up the throne, uh, the archbishop, the dukes, the princes, and other significant people come and pledge their allegiance to her. And they say, I, so-and-so, duke or earl or whatever, of such and such a place, do become your liege, man of life and limb, and of earthly worship and faith and truth, I will bear unto you to live and die against all manner of folks, so help me God. She's anointed, she's crowned, she ascends to the throne, and then all of her subjects come and convey their allegiance to her. Today we are going to begin a study in the book of Acts, and I'm going to begin, uh, we're going to be studying in verses 1 through 11, but I'm going to actually begin with verses 9 through 11. Um, which is the ascension, which speaks of the ascension of Christ, that is Christ ascending into heaven, because I think if we get that, it provides the the necessary backdrop that will help us understand everything that is in verses 1 through 9. So please don't think that that I am um, discarding the inspired author's um, order of events. I... Completely agree that Luke put things in the exact order they need to be. I'm just going to um, present them in a slightly different order because I think when we understand the glories of not chapter or verses nine through eleven, then we will be better equipped to handle verses one through eight. So, um, if you have your sermon notes with you, with our, which are in your bulletin, you can continue to to follow along. So let's read our text. Follow along with me in your Bible as we read our text today. And um, then we'll look more closely at it. Listen to the word of God. 
In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized you with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So this idea of ascension, the ascension of Christ, when we talk about uh, the works of Christ and all the things that happened in, in his life, I, more likely than not, the ascension may take a back seat to a lot of other things. Like well, we talk a lot about the death of Christ. And we talk a lot about um, the resurrection of Christ. But the ascension sometimes gets... Um, gets overlooked, and there's a lot that we could say about the Ascension. In fact, I did in, uh, on November 25th, when we were studying in the book of Luke, of course, we, we studied the, the Ascension, and, and I spoke about a variety of different um, important elements, why the Ascension is important. But today I'm going to focus on one, and it was one that we really didn't cover, or at least not in much detail, on November 25th, but I think is important for our text today. And that is that the ascension signifies Christ's heavenly reign. That is, the ascension is his coronation as king of kings and lord of his church. Let me give you a couple of examples. The first one comes to us out of Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 through 23. And I think we have that. Um, And we're breaking into the middle of a sentence. Well, actually, well... Into the middle of a sentence, it says that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave them as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So Christ is ascended, seated at the right hand of the Father, and God seats him at his right hand, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. He's above every name that is named. I love this one. Not only in this age, but in the age to come. That is, he is Lord of all time. And all things are in subjection under his feet. He's the head over the church, which is his body, the fullness of all and in all. So, what a great passage of text. Christ's ascension signifies that he is far above all rule and authority, not only in this age, but in the age to come, and that all things have been placed in subjection under his feet. We also read, let me just read briefly in 1 Peter 3.22, this isn't on the, on the screen, 
Now let me read this, this brief passage that um, helps us to grasp this idea. Who, speaking of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So Christ ascends into heaven, takes his throne, he rises to the throne, takes his throne, is seated, and all things are placed in subjection under his feet. This is his coronation. So when we read about the, the ascension of Christ, one of the many things or one of the many important elements of the ascension is that Christ has been anointed. He has been crowned and now he ascends to the throne and all things are subject to him. Folks, you know what that means? We are subject to him. He is our Lord. We are not the boss of our lives. He is Lord. He is King, not us. That also means since all things um, put in his head over all things to the church, that means that the leaders of this church, the elders of this church, are not the boss of the church. Jesus is the boss of the church. So having pointed that out, this idea of Christ, this being uh, the idea of Christ's coronation, coronation, I want us to look at this idea of this cloud taking him. And, and, and I thought this was, was interesting. To, to me it was. And as, while they were gazing, um, I'm sorry, and when he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. In other words, he wasn't simply just veiled by a cloud, but a cloud took him out of sight. And so one of the things that we should not neglect in this passage of text, and I believe Scripture interprets Scripture, and I don't think that we can consider this passage of text without considering Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7 is such an important uh, uh, chapter in the Bible regarding the kingship, the lordship of Jesus Christ, but um, because it talks about the Son of Man and Jesus referred to himself as the Son of Man. And when Jesus referred to himself as the Son of Man, what he is claiming is he's basically claiming, I'm the boss of all things. He's not saying that I am somehow born of a human. I, or I'm, it's not referring to his humanity walking on the face of the earth. It has to do with his divinity that he is Lord over all. And we get that from the book of Daniel. And in Daniel, this is what he writes. Listen to this. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man and he came to the ancient of days. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be, des be destroyed. Jesus came in the clouds, one like a son of man, who came in the clouds to the ancient of days. This would be God the Father. And to him, that is to the, the Son of Man who has ascended with the clouds, to him was given all power, all dominion, all authority, and his kingdom will have no end. This is a coronation story. We should also perhaps be reminded of Psalm chapter 24, which is a, a, a great passage of text. In fact, we, we act, there's a song that we sing, but it's... It, 
Basically, the question is asked, who will ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who can enter into the hill of the Lord? It's going to be Jerusalem. Who can go into the place of God? Who can ascend to the hill of the Lord? And the answer is this. The one who has clean hands and a pure heart and who does not lift up his soul to what is false and who does not swear deceitfully. Oh my. That creates a problem. Who can, who can ascend to the hill of the Lord? Well, the one who's perfect. And then the psalmist goes on and says, Lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. And then the question, Who is the King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory will come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Jesus has ascended to the hill of the Lord. He has ascended to his throne. He is the King of glory. He is mighty in battle. He is the one who is Lord over all things, not only in this age and the age to come. And so I want to set the stage as we enter into the book of Acts that much of the picture of the book of Acts is Christ reigning from his throne in heaven as the glorious risen King who is Lord and sovereign over all. kind of expected an amen there, but. <laughs> so Jesus is the king of the kingdom. He once carried out his rule in his incarnation in his flesh. He carried out his rule in the area of Palestine. But now, through elect ambassadors, through his disciples, through his his subjects, if you will, he now rules from his heavenly throne. He used to go about and carry out his mission um, in Jerusalem and Judea and in the surrounding areas. But now he has ascended and he carries out his mission as the Lord from heaven. And he commissions men and women to continue the work that he began. So this is much of the book of Acts. I think this is a major theme and I think maybe a chord that will run all the way through the book of Acts. So that's why I want to make sure that we begin with this exalted view of Christ. But then as we continue, or as we go back to Luke chapter, I'm sorry, it's Acts chapter 1. Luke wrote it though, right? Luke wrote Acts. So it's Luke volume 2, chapter 1. And we'll look at verse 1. In the first book, or in the former book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. And I want to just spend a few moments thinking about this word, all that Jesus began to do and teach. Because when you hear the word began, it seems as though the work is not finished. That he began something, but it's not complete. And so, of course, immediately we say, wait a second, I thought the work of Christ was completed. In fact, on the cross, he said, it is finished. And now you're telling me, Luke is even telling me that these are things that he began to do and teach. So just to make sure that we are clear, we're clear on some of these things, that the work of redemption is complete. Make no mistake about it. The work of redemption is complete. It is finished. Jesus said that. It is done. Having completed the work of redemption, what now needs to take place, redemption being 
let's just use that word freedom, the work of freedom being purchased, now the message of that freedom needs to go out. That still is something that needs to go on. That is, the message of freedom now needs to cover the earth. And Jesus' earthly ministry was the beginning. He began to to declare the kingdom of God. And now he is going to commission his church, his people, to continue what he began. That is the proclamation of redemption. The proclamation that the king has come, the kingdom has come, and now you are being invited to be a participant, a citizen in that kingdom. And Jesus is now began that work and he is going to complete or finish that work through his people. So the book of Acts is, is a continuation of all that Jesus began to do and teach. So the good news of redemption now continues through his chosen people. The book of Acts portrays Jesus reigning from on high, overseeing his subjects as they take the good news of salvation and continuing the work that Jesus began. And so it says that I want to talk to you, O Theophilus. Um, this is probably Luke's patron, perhaps uh, paid for the writing of these books. Writing, of course, would have been very expensive in those days. Um, perhaps Luke being a doctor, we think of doctors being wealthy, but doctors may not have been so wealthy. They may have needed um, uh, somebody wealthy to help support them. And so more likely than not, Theophilus is that patron. Um, there are some, some other ideas about that, but I think he was an individual who, um, who at least commissioned or probably commissioned um, or paid for this writing, perhaps other things. But anyways, Luke is writing to this Theophilus about um, all that Jesus began to do and teach. So then we should, should ask ourselves the question, what did Jesus begin to teach? Well, fortunately, we don't have to go very far because the Bible tells us, doesn't it? Speaking, he spent 40 days speaking with them about the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? I'm just going to define it this way, and I stole this definition. But it, it works, I think. It is God's redemptive rule, reign, and authority over those he has redeemed. It is God's rule over his redeemed. It is his redemptive rule and reign over those he has redeemed. So I'm telling you about all that Jesus began to do and teach. We're going to ask ourselves the question, what did Jesus teach um, his disciples? He taught them about the kingdom of God. You remember, they're going to go out into all the world. We're going to see in just a second. They're going to go to the uttermost parts of of the earth. They're going to go um, into very, very remote places, dangerous places, um, places where their message is, is accepted. Um, they're, they're going to be going all over and they're going to be teaching the kingdom of God. Folks, as we go out, as um, the disciples go out, and I think that this book or this passage of text, well, really Acts, is, is so applicable to us because what is happening there is also um, contemporary. In other words, this is not just for the first 120 disciples. This is for us. And for us to go out and to proclaim the kingdom of God, we need to have the right message. 
It's imperative that we have the right message. That's what we were talking about this morning downstairs. We are talking about evangelism. If it is the gospel that saves, and it is, since Paul says the gospel saves, um, it is the power of God to salvation, we should make sure that we have the right message. And if there are false gospels that bring death, we should make sure that we are not purveyors of false gospels, but that we have the right message. And this is what Jesus spends at least these 40 days after his resurrection, teaching his disciples. He's teaching them about the kingdom of God. He's giving them the right message. So then we have to ask ourselves, when he talks, tells them about the kingdom of God, what exactly are the contents of this teaching about the kingdom of God? And fortunately, we do not have to wonder about that because the four Gospels give us Jesus' message about the kingdom of God. And I'm just going to be very, very brief. We could spend days on how each gospel outlines the kingdom of God. But let me just give you a few highlights, and I think this should, um, should cause you to rejoice. Here's the message of the kingdom of God. In both Matthew and Luke, we see the kingdom of God um, demonstrated in that Jesus is the rightful king of the kingdom. That is, he is the son of David. He is the son of God. He is born to be king. He is the fulfillment of all of the Davidic promises, all of the promises of David reigning on a king, of a future son of David reigning forever and ever on the eternal throne. Jesus fulfills that. He is the rightful king. He is the rightful son of David. He is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. He is the king that God has been talking about since day one. So when we talk about the kingdom of God, we need to talk about, well, then, who is the king of this kingdom? And Matthew and Luke really emphasize that Jesus fulfills all all of the promises of God and that he is the rightful king. He is the son of David. He is the son of God. And then Mark comes in and he illustrates the authority of this king, that the authority of this king has no limits whatsoever. That is, he rules over nature. He calms the storms. He stills the sea. He has authority over devils. Be, and he casts out de devils. He has authority over death by raising the dead. He has authority over illness. There is nowhere where the, this king does not have rule and authority. And one of the great places we see his authority is in his miracles that pertain to the forgiveness of sins. And what comes to mind is especially where... The four friends bring the paralytic and they dig through the roof. You know that story. And they dig through the roof and they lower the man down so that Jesus could, could heal him. And folks, so oftentimes when we hear that story and we hear it preached, and I probably preach this too, we, we talk about the faith of the four people or the faith of the individual. Those are important components, but we're missing. This is about Christ and his rule as king. Because he says, I have authority to forgive sins. This is what he says. What's easier? To forgive sins or to heal a lame man? You need to understand the background to the question. The background is this. That the Pharisees and most of the people standing around in this crowded house associated this man's sickness with sin. The reason he's sick is because he's a sinner. Right? Remember the blind man, John chapter 9? Who sinned, this man or his parents? What was Job's comforters or his friends? 
What were they blaming the reason for his calamity? You must be a sinner. The reason for your condition is because you're a sinner. So when Jesus said, what's easier to say your sins are forgiven or to heal him? Which one's easier? The one that's easier is to say your, your sins are forgiven. Why? Because I can just say your sins are forgiven and go about my way and you just have to trust me. Much easier to say that. But so that you will know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Be healed. Rise up and walk. When this man steps up out of that pallet and picks it up, it is demonstrating to everybody that this man has his sins that were keeping him sick have now been forgiven of him. Which is easier? To heal him? Or to say your sins are forgiven. I guess it doesn't matter for Jesus because he just does both. That is what my point here is Marcus, Luke and Matthew are telling us that the king is the promised king who has, um, um, is the rightful king. Mark is telling us he has all authority, all power, all dominion over nature, over the natural, over the supernatural, over death, over sin, over everything. This is the king of the kingdom. When we go about preaching the kingdom of God, we need to make certain that we understand who the king is. Well, if you're part of the kingdom, who's your king? This is my king. Matthew announces that one enters. How well, then if I want to be in that kingdom, how do I get into that kingdom? Matthew tells us that one enters into the kingdom via childlike trust. You must become like a child. You must believe. John makes clear that entrance is from the miracle of new birth from above. You must be born again. You must be born from above. Mark begins his gospel with a clear command that entrance to the kingdom is, and the promised new birth comes through repentance and faith. Repent and believe. Repent of your sins and believe that Christ is the king of the kingdom and that eternal life is found in no other name. So what is the kingdom? The kingdom, when we go about preaching the kingdom, we preach that Christ is the king, that he is Lord over all and you can have access to that kingdom. How? Repent of your sins and believe that Jesus is Lord over all. Now, it may be a little more complex than... Well, no, I don't think it's more complex than that. Repent and believe. We read that this messianic king who comes is the one who is endued or possesses the Holy Spirit. But not only does he possess the Holy Spirit, but he gives the Holy Spirit. And that's one of the big signs of the Messiah. Is not There were people in the Old Testament who had the Holy Spirit. Kings and priests and prophets. In fact... In Moses' day, um, the Spirit fell on a bunch of people and they all began to prophesy. But here's the thing. While they may have possessed the Spirit, they had no ability to confer the Spirit. When Messiah comes, Messiah is not only going to have the Spirit. When the King of the Kingdom comes, he is not only going to possess the Spirit, he will impart the Spirit as well. And this is what we're going to see in the book of Acts, aren't we? They're going to receive power when? When the Holy Spirit comes upon them. And so he is the messianic king who possesses the spirit and gives the spirit without, without measure. And so just a quick summary when we talk about the kingdom, the message of the kingdom, it is the message of disciples. It is the disciples' message that Jesus is the king of the kingdom and one becomes a citizen of that kingdom on his terms. 
trusting him and turning from all others. And I think that's key, that one becomes a citizen of the kingdom by, on his terms. It is imperative that we have a solid foundation. Prophets say, my people are destroyed for their lack of knowledge. And I don't want to be guilty of not talking about or helping us understand the solid foundation. And the message is that the king, and we're going to see this over and over and over again in the book of Acts, that Jesus is Lord of all, but you crucified him. God raised him from the dead. Death, burial, resurrection of Christ. Jesus taught then his people how one enters into his kingdom. He taught them what a kingdom citizen looked like. Uh, we see in the book of Acts that he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and then he spends 40 days teaching them. Now, I'd spent three years up until then teaching them also. But it's amazing because at the end of Luke, what does he do? He opens the disciples' minds to understand the scriptures and then he spends 40 days teaching them about the kingdom of God. How cool is that? They then take that message and they then go and share that message with others and others believe. They believe that message, take it to others and take it to others and eventually it's taken to a little church in rural Arizona up in the mountains at 5,000 feet, a little place called the Church on Randall Place. That message has come to you and to me and folks, it will not die here. It will not be contained here. We would be disobeying the one who is Lord of all if I just preach from the pulpit and then that's it. The message goes out. This is all that Jesus began to do and teach and some of the things he began to do. The text tells us he presented himself alive by many proofs. And the reason being is because the resurrection is one of the central themes of the book of Acts. And so he begins to teach them about himself. So what did he begin to teach? He began to teach them about himself. This is who I am. You want to you want to put all the pieces together. You've heard about me. You've seen me do all of these really cool things. You've seen that I've overcome death. Now let me put all the pieces together and give provide for you a coherent message of who I am and what I've done and what all of that means. Now I want you to take that message and go wherever you go and take that message with you. As I said earlier, Jesus is the one who conveys or imparts the Spirit. So it. It seems very interesting then that Jesus says, that, well, I guess the natural question is, okay, well, you've taught us about the kingdom of heaven. That's really great. We're glad you taught. So let me ask you, Jesus, since you've taught us about the kingdom of heaven, is the kingdom coming now? Are you telling me that you're going to inaugurate and, and that your rule is going to be over? Has it come in its fullness now? Is this the time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus basically says, none of your beeswax. That's a very loose translation of, of the Greek. It's amazing that Jesus says, wait, wait. 
Don't we hate that word? Now that you've experienced me in my resurrection, now that you've learned about me, don't do anything. Wait. The disciples, you see, here's the thing. The disciples have experienced, they've experienced the risen Lord. They've touched him. They've had breakfast with him. All of these things. He's, he's had dinner with them. And they have great knowledge. They know about the kingdom. But they're not yet ready to go forth as ambassadors or disciples of Christ. See, if Jesus were training CEOs, engineers, or architects, or politicians, their training would be sufficient. You have the experiential understanding, and you have the intellectual understanding. You're ready to go. But Jesus is not training CEOs, or engineers, or politicians. He's commissioning witnesses. And their testimonies are going to strike at the heart of man's most sacred idols. The idols of self, the idols of tradition, the idols of independence and power and greed. The idols of self-sufficiency. I don't need Christ for the forgiveness of sins. I can do it myself. I don't need forgiveness. Or I just need Jesus to help me a little bit. I'll do most of it. And wherever I fall short, Jesus can make up where I lack. I'll do it. I'm a good person. Their message is going to strike at the heart of that idol. They're going to need more than experience and they're going to need more than knowledge. You need to wait. You're not ready yet. What's going to make us ready, Jesus? How are we going to be ready to do the thing that you've called us to do? What more could we need than experiential knowledge, seeing the risen Lord in, in his glory and his beauty and his splendor and seeing him do miracles and seeing him do all of these things and being trained by him intensely and having him open our minds to the scripture? What more could we need? You need to wait because you're going to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. You're going to need something else because the thing I'm calling you to is much greater will require much more than knowledge and experience. It's going to require supernatural power. I'm not calling you to be a CEO. Go get your MBA for that. I want you to be my witnesses. That requires something completely else, completely different. You need to wait to be immersed in the Holy Spirit. He will empower you. He will... Um, he will empower you to do everything I've called you to do. Wow. All right. Well, we'll wait. And once again, is it at this time? Are you restoring the kingdom now? That's beyond your pay grade. None of your business. And I love what he says. It is not for you to know the times or the seasons, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. So many times we want to know future events, and especially when Christ is going to come and fulfill his kingdom promises, when Christ is going to return again, when, the, when all of these things are going to be consummated. We, oh, we're so filled with trying to know when is Christ going to return. It's been going on since the very beginning of the church. We see early in the second century, we see the late in the second century, the Montanists trying to say, well, this is when Christ is going to come again. We see it all the way through church history. We see it um, out of the second great awakening. The Millerites said, well, he's going to come in 1844. They were wrong. 
Charles Rutherford, who founded the Jehovah Witness, said he, came in, he was going to come in 1914. He didn't, so usually, uh, so he spiritualized it and said, well, he came in spirit. Jesus said, it's not for you to know these things. And he picks up, this is exactly what he says in Matthew 24, really in all of the, um, Matthew 24 is just a, a good example, but this is the Olivet Discourse where he talks about his coming again. And we see it in Mark 13, we see it in Luke, we see it throughout the scriptures. But this is what they say. They say, Lord, Jesus predicts, he says, all these beautiful stones of the temple are going to be torn down. And they say, when's that going to happen? And he doesn't say January 31st, 2019. What does he say? Beware of false Christ. That's an amazing answer, don't you think? When's this going to happen? Don't worry about it. You need to know how to live between my first coming and my second coming. That's what you need to know. You don't need to know a date. You don't even need to. I'm going to show you a few signs and things you can look at. But we get all wrapped up in blood moons and wolf blood moons now, I guess. I guess a wolf blood moon is even greater than a blood moon. But we get all wrapped up in these things. And Jesus is saying, don't worry about such things. What you need is you need power to be my witnesses. You need to be my you need to watch out for false witnesses. You need to be one who is a faithful worker in my kingdom until that day so that when I come, it will not catch you off guard. What you need is not to know when I'm coming. What you need is to know how to live until I do come again. Lord, is that at this time you're restoring the kingdom. None of your business, but you will receive power to be my witnesses so that when I come again, you will be busy about my father's work. I'm going to give you the ability to do that. Peter talks about this when he talks about the end coming. And then his next question is this. How then should we live? Knowing these things, that Christ is going to come back, how then should we live? Not like, oh, I figure out here's a good day that I think he might come back again. No, how then should we live? How should we live between the Advents? We just got done with Advent season, did we not? There's a second Advent, and Jesus is giving us, telling us, here, I'm going to give you power to live between the Advents. And how are you going to live? You are going to be, I'm going to give you power to be my witnesses. Where? In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And this is, we're going to see this in the book of Acts. The book of Acts is going to begin in Jerusalem. And then it's going to go out to Judea and Samaria. And then we're going to see it keep going out and going out into the uttermost parts of the earth and we're going to see it go to Rome. And then when the book of Acts ends, we know that it went to Spain and we know that it went to Persia. We know that it went to China. We know that it went to sub-Sahara Africa. We know that eventually it gets up. We don't even know how it got into Ireland, but it got into Ireland somehow. We, we think, of, I'm sorry, Scotland. Scotland all of a sudden has the gospel. We don't know how it got the gospel, but it did get the gospel. One, people are wondering, how did they learn the gospel? Missionaries go there and they already know the gospel. How do they know it? You can trace it right back to this 120. You're going to receive power and you're going to be my witnesses. Folks, that commission has not ended. That's not something that we look back and say, well, we, we just need to, that's something that happened back then and let's draw an illustration today. No, we are still going to be 
Jesus has still filled us with the power of the Holy Spirit for what purpose? To be his witnesses. To declare the kingdom of God. That the king has come and that we are to bow before him. We are to continue what Jesus began. That's going to require the same power that Jesus had. Jesus operated by the power of the Holy Spirit and now he's saying, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit who is basically me who will come and dwell within you. So folks, I know I've said this before, but I think it's worth saying again, and then I'll, I'll, be, I'll start to end. <laughs> I didn't say I'd end, but I'd start to end. <laughs> Sorry. Um, yeah. In the early church, you had the twelve, and we know a little bit about some of the things they did, at least by tradition. We know what Peter and Paul did. By tradition, we know, have a clue of what some of the others did. We know what Thomas did and some of the others. Well, one of the cool things, one of the, we have to ask ourselves, how did the gospel spread across the Roman Empire? How did really 120 people spread this message so that it became influential across the million square mile, million square mile empire? How did that happen? Did it happen by 120 people? Oh, there are so many unnamed, unnoticed um, people. I, I can't wait to study church history from God's perspective in glory. Because we're, right now all we have is who, who wrote stuff down. That's all we know about in church history. But God knows all the people who didn't write anything down. Because they were merchants. They were shop owners. They were farmers. They were ranchers. And they were people who went and they, they came to market to bring their goods. And they would talk about Christ. See, everybody considered themselves a missionary. Everybody. That was their second job. Their second job was, I do such and such. That's, my pri- that's how I make my living. But I'm a missionary. I'm a merchant. But as I go merchanting, I take the gospel wherever I go. When I go and make a tent, I take the gospel wherever I make a tent. This is how the gospel spread. It still spreads that way today. Not through professional, like, or only through professionals like Peter and Paul, though certainly they made a great contribution. But through folks like you and me, you and I, are empowered, commissioned, called, take the gospel message, the kingdom message that the king has come. Forgiveness is found in his name. You can be part of that kingdom. Repent and believe the gospel and you will be saved. So, now I'll begin to close. You know, really we'll close. (laughs) I think Acts is an immensely practical book. It's not one of those books that is just kind of in the theological realm and then we have to find an illustration to help us understand it. It's, understand, it's, it's so immensely practical. Folks, here's the bottom line. You and I, we live under the rule and reign of the risen, ascended, enthroned king and he has taught us and empowered us to be his witnesses. And we are to take that message of Christ wherever we go.
And we all have different roles. Some of us water, Paul says. Some of us sow. God causes the increase. And we're seeing that all over the place. I mean, sometimes you hear somebody coming to the Lord and, and you're going, man, I witnessed to that person like three years ago. You played a role in it. Understand that. God caused the increase. And somebody happened to be there to pick the low-hanging fruit. But it all came about because somebody like you and others declared the kingdom to this person. Some of you are going to water. Some of us are going to sow. Some of us are going to do... God has given us all different roles in the kingdom. I'm glad he did that. And as a church body, he's given us different roles, but we need to be about the king's business. Sharing the gospel. By the way, he's empowered us. You can say, well, I don't know enough. Come to our evangelism class. There are four things you need to know if you're in our evangelism class. Remember those four things? God, man, Jesus, response. Get those four things. You'll be able to share the gospel. A gospel that saves. He's also gifted us. Look at 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. He's not only empowered us, he's gifted us with all sorts of different gifts so that we can build others up and bring and help um, do the work he has called us to do. He's taught us. Sometimes he teaches us by reading his words, sometimes through gifted teachers. Here's the other thing. He's with us. He hasn't abandoned us. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So when you're out there going, I don't know what I'm supposed to do, all authority has been given to him and he is with you. And he has empowered you with himself. And he rules and he reigns. So the book of Acts is immensely um, practical and it begins with the coronation of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Let's stand.